Now, over recent weeks, we've been unpacking this prayer line by line, thought for thought. And the reason has to do with what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that struck the immediate and first disciples of Jesus in their observations of him, their interactions with him, was that they encountered a man of incomparable spirituality and that he was a man who walked with God. And of course, this awakened within them an awareness that he was more than just a man. And they wanted to know how it was that he enjoyed such close intimacy and fellowship with the Father. Now, for us, we might assume if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you might assume, well, obviously he enjoyed such close fellowship with the Father, such intimacy, um, on account of the fact that he's the Son of God, obviously, right? And you think, it's a little bit like having a backstage pass to an event or a VIP ticket or a golden ticket to something where you can get to go and meet with the stars or whatever. Jesus was a son of God, therefore he had special access to the Father in that sense. But I rather think that when you read the Gospels closely and you observe and study the life of the Lord Jesus and understand the theology of what took place and when the Son of God took on human flesh, became fully human, with that he accepted the limitations of humanity. He was born a normal baby. He had to learn as you and I learned, to speak and then to read and then to obey and all the things that we learned growing up. And therefore, he was subject, being subject to these limitations. I believe that that carried through in the sense of his way of means of relating to God, that he was in one sense restricted um, in the ways that you and I are. Um, he did not enjoy being in the Father's presence face to face as he had in eternity, but rather now as a man had to relate to God the way you and I do. He had to study the scriptures and learn them and become intimately acquainted with them. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's record of, of that happening, how the Spirit comes upon him. And most importantly of all, and where our focus is, he had to be devoted to prayer. It wasn't that Christ um, could somehow bypass the necessity and the discipline and the structure of, of, of walking in a prayer um, routine and relationship with the Father. And this sounds odd, doesn't it? Because we tend to think maybe he had some other way, some other means, some other shortcut to walking with God. And I actually don't think that the Bible leads us to that conclusion at all. And that is deeply encouraging to us. Because if, Christ is, if, if what we observe in the life of Christ was someone who, in his own lips, so he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Or he says elsewhere, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, he was someone who was every, every atom of his being was aligned with the will of God. We're seeing someone so perfectly obedient and sub submitted and, and intimate with the Father. And yet we see that his means of fellowshipping with God was the very same means that he offers to us. That, to me, is a profoundly encouraging reality. It means that this offer is open to us all. You, too, can learn as Christ learned, be filled with the same Spirit, and as we're focusing over these weeks, pray as he prayed. And this is why... We're so interested to hang on his every word as the disciples were when they, they said to him, teach us to pray on occasions. And he opened up his teaching on prayer. And so this is why we've been unpacking the Lord's Prayer in this way. And we're coming now to the 12th verse. And I think what will be the second to last message in this series in which he teaches us to pray this. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I think that in coming to this particular line in, in the prayer, we've arrived at 
what is perhaps the most unique moment in the prayer for a number of reasons. One is that this is the only line in the prayer that Christ himself did not need to utter. Since he did not need to seek the forgiveness of God, he was a perfect man. And in that sense, it's the one line in the prayer that differentiates him from us and uh, accentuates and, 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 and displays his uniqueness. But he was teaching us this prayer that we might walk in fellowship with the Father like he does or did in that sense. Another thing I would say about this is it's the only line in the prayer that can be felt to be answered instantly the moment you pray it. The other lines in the prayer, you see the answers unfolding. He says, your kingdom come. That's an unfolding reality. Give us this day our daily bread. That's an experience that goes on throughout your days. Forgive us our debts, I think, has a unique emphasis in that we're seeking the answer. We're seeking the experience of the forgiveness and the grace of God there on the spot. And therefore, I think with that is the implied power of this, that when we learn to pray it rightly, there is extraordinary powerful change in your life. And I want to say one last thing about this by way of introduction. This line is unique because I think it is a line that is fiercely and deeply and powerfully opposed by Satan. He does not want us to pray this prayer. And I would draw as evidence for this the many ways in which we see the world's opposition to this whole idea that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Think about how over many years now we've been learning from the philosophers that not only is there no God, but therefore there is also no such thing as sin since there is no one to sin against and therefore no need to seek forgiveness. And that's not an idea that remains in the lofty sort of academic uh, ivory towers. It's an idea that seeped into our culture. You know, most people do not any longer possess an idea that they need the forgiveness of a God who made us. We've also heard from the scientists who have sought to undermine this notion of our moral instincts as being in, implanted by God by explaining morality in terms of evolutionary theory. So we're now told that our instincts that guide us towards right and wrong, our sense of morality and, mora and living in a moral universe, that all that is is an evolutionary biological trick in order to encourage better behavior that leads to the survival of our species. You think, what's the effect when this is the message that's constantly drip-fed to us through um, articles and the media and so on? We hear it all the time. What's the effect of that? And I think the effect is somehow to take the power out of any moral obligation in your life or any sense that you're a moral being who has certain oughts that ought to direct your life, whether to do the right and to avoid the wrong. And the effect of it is a little bit like if you're watching a puppet show and you see the strings, the magic of the moment disappears. When I was... Um, Growing up as a kid in the 80s, uh, I used to watch the Superman films with Christopher Reeve. And uh, they, they were good in a sense, although I haven't watched them for a long time, so perhaps they were not good. They were good to my child brain, at least. But in one way they were not good was that the special effects were atrocious. You know, you could practically see the wires that Christopher Reeve was hanging on so that his jerky body as it's flying through the sky, there was nothing convincing about it at all. And that somewhat bled the movies of, their, of the magic of this idea of this man flying around the world. 
And there's something like that happens when, when, when science seeks to explain away your moral instincts as just accidents of your biology and your genetics and, and of, of our social history. And what that does is it means that, well, if, they, if it's just because I'm sort of instinctually programmed to, to, to uh, be drawn to certain behaviors and avoid certain others, I don't have to do anything. Or I don't have to avoid anything. And suddenly the sense of an ought disappears, and I'm no longer really a moral being at all. So the philosophers, the scientists, I think we can add to this um, what we've heard filtering through from the psychologists, or at least some, in which guilt is very often explained away as a complex, as something that is in need of therapy. So the idea that you are a perpetrator of wrong is somewhat emptied of its power because your guilt feelings are dealt with in this therapeutic way as something that just needs to be fixed and healed, quite apart from whether you've done wrong in your life. My favorite example of this, you know, is the way that once upon a time, if you were... Um, a sexually liberated male, should we put it like that, someone who was sleeping with anyone you felt like, then there would be the social powers to shut down that behavior, whether it's exclusion or whatever. And then we went through a season where men who were living this particular lifestyle would plead victimhood, describing themselves as sex addicts. And all we all know, an addict is someone in need of therapy, Right? So suddenly they've gone from being, what the, to use the language, the religious language, fornicators and adulterers, to now becoming sex addicts in need of you know, therapy and sit on the, the psychologist's couch and have therapy and healing to deal with your issues, whatever they might be. I think actually we've seen something of a reco recoiling from that in recent years, haven't we? We're no longer willing to give guys um, that kind of rope, as it were, and we're calling people to account now again. And there's a, there's a reaction to it. But you can see what I mean. We've sort of bled the idea of moral behavior and guilt out of, out of, your, out of your, your experience and turned it into something, turned, turned ourselves into victims rather than perpetrators of wrong. And you add all these things together, and then complicit with it is the instinct of our own heart and how, how we are so resistant at times to the idea of the admission of wrong. We want to excuse our wrongs or we want to escape from guilt feelings. In other words, there are a whole array of forces that are conspiring together to undermine you and me, from ever really praying this in a meaningful way, in a sincere and passionate and devoted and believing way, to come to God as our creator, the holy God over us, and seek his grace in a way that can actually profoundly change our lives. Now, despite this reality that we live in, in our culture, guilt persists. People still feel guilty. We have just lost the ability to explain it. We feel guilt as this gnawing sense that we somehow have broken our situation or a sense of anxiety or a sense of accusation or a sense of shame that can be carried around in life. And for this reason, I believe this is that conscience is implanted in us by a holy God. And therefore, I think, when Christ taught us to pray this prayer, he, he taught us a prayer that has enduring power and relevance. It is as relevant now as it was the day Christ uttered it. And the question that I want us then to wrestle with as we take this seriously 
for the power and life-changing potency that it possesses, is how can we come to a place of feeling truly forgiven? How can we take this prayer on our lips in a way that is meaningful so that we can feel truly forgiven and experience the full power of what Christ is offering here in and through this prayer? Now, the first thing I want to say on that is that I believe that before we can even really say it in a meaningful way, the first thing that must take place is we need to confront the problem of sin in our lives. We need to confront the reality of sin in ourselves. I say this because, as I've already hinted at, I'm not sure that we can any longer in our day and age assume that that sin consciousness is there present in us all. There was a time when just about any man on the street would have taken for granted the idea that God is holy and that he's a holy judge and lived somewhat in terror of that reality knowing his own wickedness. Perhaps to a degree and to an extent that had, did become unhealthy in the sense that there was no hope and no life and no grace available. I think if anything, we've moved somewhat to the opposite, the opposite extreme, haven't we, today in our day and age. We've swung to an extreme where we no longer feel particularly comfortable using the language of sin at all. And where we do see wrong, it's very rarely in us. It tends to be isolated in a few particularly wicked things that our culture arbitrarily decides as being the worst things. Now, some of them very obviously are terrible. Now, we're willing to call genocide something wicked and heinous as it is. And some of them are more selective. You think how, in our day and age, prejudices of any kind that, quest, that somehow um, uh, might look down on another are regarded as the worst kinds of sins that we can perpetrate. And I, I don't disagree, it's terrible, but what I'm saying is it's interesting how we become so selective on what right and wrong is in our culture. And always the wrongs are things that others do, never things that I do. Right? It's a little bit like how our relationship with bacteria has changed. There was a time when bacteria had been discovered as the cause of so many illnesses and diseases in the human body, but as yet there was no known cure. And so it would have been the case that to, to uh, contract some kind of infection would have caused terror you know, everywhere, all around us, and even inside of us there is this, this potential threat. And then antibiotics are discovered. And suddenly, we're very blasé, aren't we, about the reality and present of my, presence of microorganisms. Of course, unless, of course, we're talking about viruses and pandemics and so on, but you get my drift. Apart from a few, a few exceptional things, like MRSA and these new resistant strains of tuberculosis. And something like that has happened in our relationship to sin. There once was a time when we saw it's pervasive everywhere, in me and you everywhere. And now we see it as isolated, as something rare, almost something... So, so wicked that it's so far off the scale and has nothing to do with me. No threat to my day-to-day -day existence. And the result of that, it seems, is that even while our guilty feelings persist, persist, we have no way of explaining what is wrong with our own hearts and our own souls. Christ, I think, with a single word, gives us a window and an insight into the biblical diagnosis of what sin is and what sin looks like in our lives in a way that really cuts against this deconstruction that's happened in our culture. 
Man, modern man struggles with the language of being described as a sinner. But what does Jesus say here? He says, forgive us our debts. Debts. A debt is something that you owe that you haven't paid. When you understand this within the biblical framework of what the, the way Bible describes righteousness, it can actually transform the way you understand right and wrong, holiness and sin. It puts the emphasis in a different place. You see, we're used to thinking about sin through the lens of certain acts that you commit. We call them sins of commission, right? So the Bible you know, tells you, don't do this, that, or the other, and you say, well, if I avoid doing this, that, or the other, then those are wrongs that you've, uh, you've avoided. The language of debts instead brings to the fore the idea of sins of omission, which I think is the dominant and pervasive notion of sin in Scripture, actually. The ways in which we actively fall short of the call to live a holy and righteous life and what it means to be God's child. In a sense, this is a much more uh, revealing and pervasive idea when you understand what we're speaking about. You see, sins of commission, you could list as things like, you say, do not murder. You say, well, I haven't murdered. Do not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that. And you sort of, or whatever you have done, maybe there were isolated moments in your life and you've dealt with them. A sin of omission is somewhat different. And it evokes a kind of reflection on your life when you hear a command like this one, what Christ describes as the greatest command. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, the biblical definition of a holy and righteous life is a man or a woman whose every cell and every molecule and protein within every cell is directed into the purpose and desire to live for the glory and, magn and, and, uh, and worship of the God who made you, to love God with everything that you are. That's the biblical core. And when you consider what that model of righteousness is and then examine the breach between that and yourself, that distance is what Christ is describing here as the debt we owe. Or take another command like love your neighbor as yourself. Who among us can honestly claim to have loved anyone as much as we love ourselves? I'm not sure I even love my wife as much as I love myself. I don't mean in the sense of gooey affection that I feel for myself. I mean in the sense of practical looking after myself. You know how it is that every day you manage to take care of yourself. And so it is that what he's showing us here, even in just a word, it's not just, friends, that we need to be conscious of the, the, the things you've done that you know are wrong. It's rather that we begin to see that our entire existence is an accumulation, in a sense, of debt. Our every waking moment, our every breath, our every inclination, our every act, our every thought, in that sense, falls so far short of the model of perfection and righteousness that is Christ himself. That's the debt. 
And to say that is not, in a sense, to find ourselves in a quandary of depression. In a sense, there is something profoundly liberating and relieving when we can confront this reality and we can say honestly, now I see the distance between me and a holy God. You see, when this reality is denied, as it so often is in the world in which we live, it's a little bit like that experience that some people have had where they've had conditions that doctors have not been able to diagnose or understand. You know, for a long time, this was true of ME, described as chronic fatigue. A person might go to the doctor, describe the symptoms as being tired all the time, being listless and unable to fulfill responsibilities and so on. And to them, that is such a real experience in day-to-day life. And they present all the symptoms to the doctor, and the doctor begins to draw up a differential diagnosis of all the possibilities and then run a battery of tests and so begin to eliminate through blood tests and scans. Is it cancer? No, it's not cancer. Is it, is it an iron deficiency? It's not an iron deficiency. And so through a process of elimination, eventually the doctor arrives at this conclusion, I can't find anything wrong with you. And in the absence of an an explanatory symptom, apart from this description, this label is attached. But even then, it's dissatisfying, because then you go and tell others, I have this condition, and there's an embarrassment in that, because there are many people who are skeptical. Does this thing exist? Is it real? Isn't it just all in your head? And I think something like that's going on. When you know in your soul there's something wrong with you, and yet the world's telling you, don't be silly. There's no such thing as sin. There's no holy God. There's no, there's no standard that you've fallen far short of. You're fine the way you are. And that message from out there very much denies the reality that all of us are conscious of on the inside. No, there's a brokenness in me. Something that needs fixing. And it's only when you reflect on the biblical diagnosis and you understand what the Bible has to say about the debt that we owe and our inability to pay this debt, that you can finally breathe and say, well, now I understand my problem and go looking for that solution. You need to confront the problem of sin. Now, this brings me on to the next thing, which is this. That you're then called, having understood your problem, you're then called to pursue Deep reconciliation and unbroken fellowship with the Father. That's the opposite, in a sense, of the pathway of sin. And I want to stress this because I think sometimes we can fix on matters of what are actually secondary importance. We can think about sin purely in terms of of sin and punishment and forgiveness and, and the possibility of escaping judgment. All of that is massively important. But it's not the main thing. The main thing in Scripture, the main problem which sin induces and which we need a solution to, is the breach that we experience in our fellowship and closeness and intimacy with God. Let me explain this to you a little bit more. Sin in Scripture has both, is both a legal and a personal problem. Now, what I mean when I describe it in that way, sometimes the wrongs we do have purely a a legal dimension, but no personal dimension. I think, for example, you know, about certain things that that can be illegal, like, for example, 
Two weeks ago, I received a letter in the mail that I had been driving home from a wedding, 10 past 12 in the middle of the night, and I might have been going a little faster than I ought to have been. Caught in one of these average speed traps, empty road, no one around for miles, no real threat or anything to anyone else, by my judgment, you know. And so it's a legal wrong, but I don't feel any particular guilt about the moral wrong. The government feels differently, right? But anyway, that's what I'm talking about. Or you think about all these kind of financial crimes that take place. You can, you can be in breach of certain financial rules, but you don't necessarily feel that there's a personal issue or moral issue in, in the sense that no one's been hurt. Or an example that probably a number of you are familiar with, logging into your friends' subscriptions, you know, their Prime accounts and Netflix accounts, you know, technically and legally wrong. But you've all done it, right? You know, there's a, is there anyone who's suffering? Well, maybe, maybe not. No, there's no real personal implication, is there, at that level? Now, on the other hand, there are, there are many things that we do that are wrong in life that have no legal issue, but are morally and personally wrong. And I think, for example, about insulting your spouse. Now, the law has nothing to say about this. You'll suffer for it, but the, the law has nothing to say. It's a personal issue. It's the same with any of your, your relational issues that you experience in life, most of them. Sin is unique in this way, or at least it's characterized as being both a legal and a personal issue. And what I mean is this, that the Bible describes our, our, the God in heaven as both judge and as father. It, as the judge, he's the perfect and righteous one who is morally obliged to deal with sin in our lives, either by judging us or by judging his son on the cross who takes our sins off in in taking our sins upon himself there. As judge, our, our God in heaven must be satisfied. But the Bible also reveals God as father, as a father who whose ways are righteous and pure and wise and good. So that sin is never just a legal thing in which you've broken some arbitrary rule. It is always a personal thing as well in the sense that you have, you have, you, you have committed an act that is an affront to the God who made you. Now this explains, it was revealed in one of the most illuminating verses in Scripture, I think, on this theme. King David, caught in, or guilty of, I should say, a wicked moment of committing adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. She lands pregnant. He then arranges for her husband, a soldier, to be on the front lines of battle in a hopeless scenario so that he'll be killed and he can marry Bathsheba. Adultery, then murder. And then to round the whole situation off, he keeps it under wraps for a year in a kind of Watergate scandal of the 900s BC, this kind of great fraudulent cover-up situation. He only experiences repentance and a moment to be right with God when he's confronted by a prophet called Nathan who goes to him and confronts him having been sent there by God. David's broken in that moment. 
And he composes, in his prayer of repentance, he composes the 51st Psalm. A raw confession of wrong. And there's a line in that psalm where he says, against, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he's saying, I'm fully aware in this moment of everything I've done wrong. And then he adds this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only have I sinned. If you read that psalm, and take a moment to think about what he's saying there. That will strike you as something quite unbelievable. How can David be saying, having wronged so many people, Bathsheba, Uriah, her husband, and the whole nation, in deceiving everyone around this situation? How can he say, against you, God, you only have I sinned? Now, I don't think that he's in any way wanting to diminish the reality of what he had done against other people. But he's saying, by comparison... My sins, the greatest problem of my sin is the way in which it is an affront to you, God. And the greatest and most dire consequence of my sin is the way in which it brings about a breach in my relationship with you. Which is why he goes on later in that psalm to say, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now what I'm trying to say to you friends is this. That the greatest trouble on sin, of sin cannot be measured by the scale of the wickedness of the act or the, 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 the consequences of what you've done or thought or said. The greatest problem of sin is not even whether you the threat of punishment on account of it, the greatest problem of sin is the breach that it brings about in terms of our relationship with the God who made us. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now this is a very obviously true for any of you who, you're not Christian. And what I'm putting before you is this, that the Bible says that we're all born in sin and that we've all added to that with our own wicked rebellion. And that the, re the result of that is that we have this great breach between us and God. You don't know God. You have no living relationship with God. And that might be difficult for you to even conceive of what it is that I'm describing. It's as hard as it might be for someone born in the tropics to imagine the experience of rolling in the snow. Or someone born in Britain to imagine the experience of diving into a warm sea. You know, these things are hard to comprehend and understand if they're outside of the realm of your experience. And if you've grown up, God has not been in your sphere of consciousness and you've not, you've, you have no conception of what it means to know God or to be friends with God. What I'm suggesting to you, friend, is that that great chasm that gulf, that sense of yawning gap in your heart, that deficit, that is what's missing. And it's there because of this breach between you and the God who made you because of your sin. There's a way across through the atoning, redeeming work of Christ on the cross. He died for your sin 
to breach that chasm and to bring you to the Father that you might know him. And the greatest difference between before and after, when you were not a Christian to then when you come in repentance and know God and experience his forgiveness, the greatest difference between then and now is this difference. You can then say, I know God. God knows me. That's therefore clearly true for any of you who are not Christian. There's an invitation there to pray this prayer for the first time and to know God. But I also think that this is relevant to us who are Christian. And I say this because, look, you know, if you know the gospel, if you know your theology, you understand that the moment you became a Christian, you were justified. You were pronounced righteous by the, by the judgment of God. Not because you'd earned it, because it was gifted to you, because Christ gifts you his righteousness. And to be justified means that you are no longer, your sins are not held against you, whether that's past, present, or future sin. And that there is no sin you can commit that can unjustify you. Such a liberty there is in knowing the grace of God in this way. That's the Christian gospel. But then you ask, well, why is it then that Christ is teaching me, teaching me to continually go to God and pray, forgive us our sins? And I think the answer is this, that even though there can be no threat to your status as a believer and as a child of God. Nevertheless, you and I know the effects of what our sin does in terms of our relationship and our sense of intimacy with the Lord who made us. You know what it is to backslide and to, be, to wander away from God and to feel the gap to feel the distance, to feel the absence of his presence in your life. It's not that he ever leaves you, but that there is this interruption in your ability to commune with the Lord as your father. And to me, this makes sense when I can distinguish between God as judge and God as father. God the judge will never punish me for my sins because he punished Christ upon the cross. But now that I know God is my Father, I know that my sins affect my relationship with Him. And that when my sins remain unconfessed, they fester in my soul. And they interrupt my ability to commune with the Lord in an intimate and close way. Now I think that I have support in this, in numerous passages, but I'll only give you two. In Ephesians 4, for example, Paul is giving one of his lists of exhortations, things, behaviors to avoid, and what righteousness looks like in the life of Christians. And right in the middle of all that he's saying there, he says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Are you conscious that there is a sense in which you have grieved the Spirit? 
through deliberate or persistent disobedience? Are you aware of a great distance between what an obedient life looks like and the way in which you've been living? So what Paul would warn you with, he said, don't grieve the Spirit. You understand how that can affect your sense of closeness and intimacy with the Lord. Well, I can show you this in a more positive way. In numerous places throughout the New Testament, but I'll just select one example here where continually the New Testament calls us to a life of pleasing God. So 1 Thessalonians 4.1 puts it like this. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I'm glad that someone's listening. (laughs) Why would the Bible hold out to us this idea that there is a way you can walk that is pleasing to the Lord? Unless it was the case that our obedience matters. This is very important because I'm not in any way wanting to deconstruct or dissolve the assurance of the gospel. The gospel tells us that you are a saint, that you are righteous, that it's gifted to you, and that nothing can change your status before God as your judge. But the Bible also shows us that in terms of our experience of our relationship with God as our Father, that there are ways He wants us to walk that are pleasing to Him and ways that grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is why I'm suggesting to you, friends, that even as you walk forward in the Christian life, you know you are saved, you know that you're forgiven, you know you're justified. Nevertheless, the invitation that Christ puts in front of you is this. Continually seek the grace of God. Come to him continually in contrition and repentance and confession. Seek his grace knowing that he wants to give it to you. Not in a way that requires groveling and a straining and a a waiting and a desperation as though God was somehow withholding forgiveness from you, but in a way that is confident and assured as a child is sure that they are going to be fed that evening for dinner. You come to God with an open heart, with a transparent life. When you don't, you experience the withering and festering and ugly effects of your sin. Psalm 32 describes this powerfully, describes a rotting that takes place in the bones when he he says, when I kept my sin from you. But then when I confessed it, life and joy and renewal and grace and the revival of my heart. This is powerful, friends. I rather think that we can explain so much spiritual apathy and coldness of heart when we understand our inability to be honest with God about our our wrong and forthright in bringing our confession to Him and seeking His grace daily or multiple times a day, there is an opportunity to live before Him in this open way so that God's presence is there in a felt way for you continually. You're called to confront your sin 
and then pursue unbroken fellowship with the Lord. Jesus tells us one other thing here, which is part and parcel of this experience of the grace of God that we might not immediately think that it was. But he tells us also that part of this is walking in forgiveness towards others. Now this, I think, is the the part that we're most likely to overlook because we tend to think purely in terms of the vertical. The things I've done wrong that I need forgiveness for that I must confess and then receive God's grace. And that's absolutely right that that is the primary thing. But Jesus repeats, not just here, but all through the Gospels, this emphasis that the Christian is someone who walks in grace towards others. And so he says here that we are to pray, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In other words, you have no business asking for forgiveness if you are not also in that moment willing to release debts of others. And then he underlines it in this very sobering sentence where he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this seems to me to introduce a very great problem for us that we need to understand here. Is Christ saying that our forgiveness from God is somehow conditioned on and reliant upon our willingness to be gracious towards others? In other words, do we have to earn the grace of God by first giving grace to other people? And I think that that would be a wrong way of looking at it for this reason, that I I cannot either here or in my study of Scripture ever see that the grace of God is somehow reactive and responsive to our ability to be worthy of it. God's grace is always the initiating force in our lives. And to, to think of it that way would be a bit like looking at the grace of God like a donor matching scheme where, you know, a rich person says, I'll match every pound that's given to this campaign. So people scurry around giving in the knowledge that whatever they give will be doubled or tripled or whatever it is by this wealthy donor. I think, is that how God's grace works? As I dole out forgiveness to others, there's a great donor matching scheme taking place in heaven where God says, okay, I'll give you a little bit more as well. And I find that a ridiculous way of thinking. As though God's generosity and grace is somehow limited by my ability to be gracious. No, no, he's the father of grace. Rather, I think what this is showing us is this. That our ability to release the debts of others is is the proof of our understanding of the scale of our debt that we owe to God. In other words, if you haven't really you haven't really comprehended or acknowledged your own sin and just exactly how wrong and how bad and how wicked it is unless you're willing to release others as you've been released. Jesus reveals this this great difference between the scale of our debts before God and the scale of the debts that others owe us in a very powerful parable in Matthew chapter 18 in which he describes a servant who owes a debt to him, his master, a great debt, and pleads with him to forgive the debt. 
and the master in a moment of benevolence forgives the debt. Then that servant goes home and demands payment from a friend who owes him a small amount of money. Now what you won't see in this parable that is an image of the way that we are to forgive others and not hold debts that others owe us, what you won't necessarily see straight away is the amounts that Jesus uses in the financial debts that he describes there. He says that the the first servant owes 10,000 talents to the master. That's a picture of our debt before God and that he's owed 100 denarii by his friend. Let me just explain to you the difference between these two sums. One talent was the equivalent of 20 years labor financially, which I did a calculation in today's money, if you're earning £8.91 per hour, which is minimum wage, you're working a 37 and a half hour week, you're going to earn in 20 years about £347,500. And then you multiply that by 10,000 and you come out with the figure of 3,474,900,000. So Jesus is telling a story in which he says, a man owed three and a half billion pounds. And he was forgiven his debt. And then he goes home and he demands the debt that he's owed. A hundred denarii. One denarii was a day's labor, which by the same figures comes out about 6,700 pounds. In other words, one 520,000th of the amount that he owed the other, the master. And he's demanding repayment. Now Jesus is not, he's not saying, these are not precise figures, Right? He's saying they're so unbelievably, unimaginably different in scale that that's like the difference between the wrongs that people have committed against us and the wrongs we've committed against God. And the person who really has understood the scale of the wrongs, their debt towards God, will in an instant be moved to give grace towards others, even if what they've done is something terrible. Another way I like to think of it is like this. There are two great lakes in Israel, the Sea of Galilee in the north and the, sea, the Dead Sea in the south. And both of these lakes are fed by the same streams of water that flow down from the, hill, the highlands in the north. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life, surrounded by greenery and full of fish, great big tilapia fish, delicious barbecued on the beach there in, in, in Galilee. I've eaten them, as had Jesus, just walking in the master's footsteps. And uh, that's the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea, further down south, is fed by the same waters, the same waters. And there is not a, a single living thing in there. It's a salt sea. It's the lowest point on earth. It's the accumulation. All the minerals flow in, but nothing flows out. And that, to me, is the picture that is on offer here. The Christian is like the Sea of Galilee. The grace of God flows into you like the streams feeding that great sea. But you're also willing to let the grace of God flow through you to others in forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But if your life ever becomes like the Dead Sea in which you're seeking the grace of God and forgiveness, but you're unwilling to extend that same grace to others. You're lifeless. You're dead spiritually. And it may well be the case that for some of you, some of you 
Your problem is you need to come to God in fresh confession. You need to seek his grace afresh today. But for some of you, that's not the problem. The problem is that you've been unwilling to release the debts of others. And you can never feel right with God unless you're willing to extend the grace that you have received. Friend, I said to you at the start, the part of the power of this prayer is that you can experience its effectiveness and its potency on the spot instantaneously. And that's exactly what I want to invite you to do even now. If the Lord is speaking to you and moving in your heart, if you feel that you need to have dealings with the Lord in this moment, I want to leave a moment of quiet now. Pete and the musicians are going to come and help lead us in a response of worship. But before we sing and before we take communion, I want to leave just a moment of silence. I think every one of us can feel compelled to speak to the Lord right now, regardless of where we're at. It may be to bring a fresh confession or a fresh request, God, forgive me. It may be because you need to release debts of others. Let's just have a moment of, of calm and of peace and of quiet so we can commune with the Lord personally. In a moment, we're going to take the bread and the wine. We're going to eat and experience the grace of God given to us through Christ. But it's not appropriate to do that, is it? Unless we first come to the Lord in this way. Father, renew our spirits as we drink deeply of your grace this evening. May we eat and drink this communion meal knowing your love toward us and the privilege of being able to pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Feed our souls, Lord. And bring life where there's been death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.